Good morning, everyone. This is the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter audio recording of volume 11, issue number 25. This week, we are going to discuss coronavirus update number 37. I hope everyone has had a fabulous week and that you are moving forward with making great changes for your health and that of your children and that you're getting lots of hugs from your kids and vice versa. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare provider and in no way is to be used to uh, treat a health issue, diagnose a health issue, or substitute for your provider's care. Before we start discussing coronavirus, I want to look at the free thoughts quickly. Try and go the whole day without checking your phone to stay present moment with your family. That is not an easy thing to do. I challenge everybody to try it once. The whole process for me in doing it for a whole day would be to give us an awareness as to the why and the how and the how often we actually check our phone in our not present moment with our kids. And therefore, what example are we setting them? So give it a whirl, see if you can pull it off. It's not easy. All right. Volume 11, letter number 25, coronavirus update number 37. It's amazing to think that I've gone 37 newsletters in on coronavirus over the last 16, 17 months. Latest numbers at Google and CDC show continued improvement. The United States has now passed 63% of its over 18-year-old population, having been vaccinated with at least one dose, and 42% of all Americans are fully vaccinated. The number of vaccinated and or previously infected Americans is now a very large number and cases have flatlined nationally. We have no positive cases in our office for the past 10 days, which is the first time since the pandemic began. 136 million Americans are fully vaccinated, with most being higher risk. 169 million have had at least one dose. The vaccines continue to drastically reduce the risk of hospitalization and death, and that is the best piece of information that continues to come out of all of the data. North Carolina now has 78% of individuals over 65 years of age fully vaccinated, but we've stalled here. It doesn't appear we're getting a big push anymore um, with a lot of folks being vaccine hesitant. The vaccines continue to be effective against all of the variants that are showing up around the globe. As it stands today, the United States has had 33.4 million cases of COVID and has had 597,000 deaths. There's still no change in the knowledge that more than 80% of the deaths are skewed toward the over 55-year-old population and 94% of all deaths occurred in a person with a comorbid chronic health disease. As with the first news that on this topic, keep solace with the fact that there's a 99% chance and above that you will survive this virus regardless. Mathematically, you now have a 99.9998% chance of survival if you get vaccinated. Okay, quick hits. Number one, sequelae following a moderate to severe COVID infection continue to plague medical systems. In a new study in the British Medical Journal, we see a 14% increased risk of developing new onset clinical conditions. Quote, 14% of adults aged less than 65 who were infected with SARS-CoV-2, that was 27,000 out of 193,000, had at least one new type of clinical sequelae that required medical care after the acute phase of illness. 
which was 4.95% higher than in the 2020 comparator group. The risk for specific new sequelae attributable to SARS-CoV-2 infection after the acute phase, including chronic respiratory failure, cardiac arrhythmia, hypercoagulability, encephalopathy, peripheral neuropathy, amnesia, diabetes, liver test abnormalities, myocarditis or heart inflammation, anxiety and fatigue was significantly greater than the three comparator groups of 2020-2019 and viral respiratory lower tract illness groups. End quote. Dougherty et al. 2021. Parsing through the tea leaves of the study showed us that the majority of the patients that had new clinical issues were admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 were older and had pre-existing conditions. However, younger individuals without any pre-existing conditions have also fallen into this category, mirroring other studies looking at these issues. Another study by Hirschstock and colleagues also found increased post-COVID issues in a significant number of people. Women had 56% of the concerns and trended toward the older age. Number two, is COVID infection and or COVID vaccine affecting women's menstrual cycles? There is absolutely no hard data yet to support a cause and effect situation with the vaccine. The anecdotal world is replete with concerns of heavy and abnormal periods. A recent, a recent Women's Health article looks at some of these concerns. We need data to answer these questions as anecdotes are nothing more than just that, anecdotes. One study that I could find by Lee and colleagues noted a change in menstrual length and or decreased volume after COVID infection. That was not the vaccine, but after infection. This question remains unanswered. The reproductive system of a female is intimately tied to the immune system, making it highly plausible that individuals with significant inflammation post-vaccine or post-infection could have transient hormonal shifts leading to changes in menstruation and a sense of wellness to be determined, but also highly unlikely to be a problem. That's my take on it so far. Number three. Looking at the male side of hormone balance, a study in JAMA noted that low circulating male sex hormones, testosterone in particular, are associated with a worse COVID outcome. There was an inverse association between testosterone and COVID disease severity. This comes from DINSA, D-H-I-N-D-S-A, et al. in 2021. Just as with estrogen and progesterone for women, testosterone is tightly wound to the immune system. Sex hormones remain a relatively mysterious part of much of immune and neurologic function in humans and should be a major focus of research in the coming years. I have been attempting to learn more and more about hormonal function of immune health, and it is a struggle at, to say the least. Number four, quote unquote, let's put kid first. A Washington Post opinion piece hits the nail on the head for what we should be doing for children. The article states, Quote, here's one simple recommendation. Children should return to their normal lives this summer and the upcoming school year without masks and regardless of vaccination status, end quote. Contrast this last statement with the CDC's guideline comments on May 28th. Quote, camps can safely reopen without masks and distancing if everyone, quote, capitals, a whole nine yards, is fully vaccinated against COVID-19, end quote. By definition, what the CDC is really stating is that kids will be masked and distanced despite all the data against this policy because everyone being vaccinated will absolutely not nor ever happen. 
Vaccination history in America has already proven this fact. It is fundamentally illogical to ask for every child to be vaccinated as a backdrop for easing policies that are really no longer necessary based on all the past 14 months school-based transmission research, circulating viral volumes as they are now, and childhood disease risk. Yet somehow, the CDC, our most trusted source of information on infectious diseases, says exactly that. It is high time... We, t- we look at the negative realities of children's mental and physical health in a COVID protection-based fear-centric policy system that prizes the health of vaccine-refusing adults over the health of low-risk, highly sensitive growing children. The opinion piece also states rightly, quote, overall, the risk to children is too low to, just, to justify the remaining restrictions they face. Somewhere between 0.1 and 1.9% of COVID infections in children results in a hospitalization. And that's likely an overestimate given the recent studies suggesting approximately 40% of pediatric COVID-19 admissions were misclassified. The risk of a child developing MISC or multi-inflammatory syndrome is a serious inflammatory disease with effective treatments is less than one in a thousand. The virus has claimed the lives of nearly 400 children in 17 months, lower than the estimating deaths among children with recent influenza seasons. See number nine below for more issues on MISC. My take on all this information is this. I agree wholeheartedly with the opinion piece. I think it is high time we spend more of our energy worrying about children's mental and physical health from all the other things they're suffering from than the very rare and not significant COVID reality. To keep children masked and distanced based on the current set of data that exists makes zero sense to me and to many other people. So it's time we focus on what really matters. Let's get kids back in school. Let's get them educated. Let's feed them great quality food and let's keep them loved and happy. Number five, vaccination may offer long-term, long-term or even lifelong immunity from severe disease. I'm going to look at two studies. Study number one, Wang and colleagues looked at 63 COVID-19 convalescent individuals assessed at 1, 6, and 12 months after infection. 41% of these post-infected individuals also received mRNA vaccines. In the absence of vaccination, antibody reactivity to the receptor binding domain, RBD, of SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing activity and the number of RBD-specific memory B cells remain relatively stable from 6 to 12 months. Vaccination increases all components of the humoral response and, as expected, results in serum-neutralizing activities against variants of concern that are comparable to or greater than neutralizing activity against the original Wuhan HU-1 strain achieved by vaccination of naive individuals. The mechanism underlying these broad-based responses involves ongoing antibody somatic mutation, memory B-cell clonal turnover, and developmental development of monoclonal antibodies that are exceptionally resistant to SARS-CoV-2 RBD mutations, including those found in variants of concern. In addition, B-cell clones expressing broad and potent antibodies are selectively retained in the repertoire over time and expand dramatically after vaccination. The data suggests that immunity in convalescent individuals will be very long-lasting and that convalescent individuals who receive available mRNA vaccines will produce antibodies and memory B cells that should be protective against circulating SARS-CoV-2 variants. Should memory responses evolve in a similar manner in vaccinated individuals, additional appropriately timed boosting with available vaccines could cover most circulating variants of concern, end quote, Wang et al. 2021. 
Study two, quote, patients who experience mild infections, the roughly 77 patients in this study, serum anti-SARS-CoV-2 spike antibodies decline rapidly in the first four months after infection, and then more gradually over the following seven months, remaining detectable at least 11 months after infection. Anti-S antibody titers correlated with the frequency of S-specific BMPCs obtained from bone marrow aspirates of 18 SARS-CoV-2 convalescent patients seven to eight months after infection. S-specific bone marrow PCs were not detected in aspirates from 11 healthy subjects with no history of SARS-CoV-2 infection. We demonstrate that S-binding BMPCs are quiescent, indicating that they are part of long-lived compartment, Consistently circulating resting memory B cells directed against the S protein were detected in the convalescent individuals. Overall, we show that SARS-CoV-2 infection induces a robust antigenic response, long-lived humoral immune response in humans. End quote. Turner et al. 2021. This is a mouthful in these two studies. I know I read them directly as quotes, but that's where the data is, and that's what you need to hear it as. Let me break it down. These two studies in reputable journals are pointing to a very reassuring reality that the majority of us will have a long-term immunity to SARS-CoV-2 once infected and or vaccinated with the mRNA vaccine through the development of long-lasting memory immune cells. This is so exciting for someone that does not want to see a world where we have to have boosters annually or every three years. Whether vaccine alone can do this will take years to answer, but this is good news coming on the horizon. Number six. Viral load and viral cell culture can help predict which patients will be the 8 to 10% of highly infectious SARS-2 patients that cause 80% of the cases. In a well-done study in the journal Science, we see data looking at the risk of transmission. The highly infectious individuals come in all shapes and sizes according to the study. Quote, our results indicate that PAMs, pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic, and mildly symptomatic subjects in apparently healthy groups can be expected to be as infectious as hospitalized patients at the time of detection. The relative levels of expected infectious virus shedding of PAM subjects, including children, is of high importance because these people are circulating in the community and it's clear that they can trigger and fuel outbreaks. Jones et al., 2021, end quote. The new B1.1.7 variant had a 5% higher viral load than the other variants owing to its higher infectiousness. Young children, as seen in other studies, have very low viral loads. Changes occur over the years, noting higher loads beginning with adolescence and in older years. That being said, infectiousness is roughly similar between adolescents and adults based on the accumulated data to date and less than 10% being highly infectious. Quote, the bimodal distribution of culture probabilities shows a small group of 8.78% of highly infectious subjects. This qualitatively agrees with a model and a study concluding that 10% and 15% of index cases, respectively, may be responsible for 80% of transmission. Other studies reported that 8 to 9% of individuals harbored 90% of the total viral load, that in cases from India and Hong Kong, roughly 70% of the index cases had no secondary cases. The risk posed by PAM subjects is highlighted by the fact that 36.1% of highly infected individuals in our study were PAMs at the time of the detection of their infection. 
that their mean age was 37.6 years with a high standard deviation of 13.4 years and our estimate that infectiousness peaks one to three days before onset of symptoms, end quote, Jones et al., 2021. Yet again, we see how tricky this virus is with peak infectiousness days before any symptoms arrive, if they arrive at all. A small group is causing most of the infections likely related to the genetic predispositions to increase viral replication and shedding. Number seven, cardiac inflammation is a common finding in individuals after moderate to severe COVID-19. From an article in JAMA Network from 2020, we see, quote, in this study of a cohort of German patients recently recovered from COVID-19 infection, CMR revealed cardiac involvement in 78 patients, 78%, and ongoing myocardial inflammation in 60 patients, 60% independent of pre-existing conditions, severity, and overall course of acute illness, and time from the original diagnosis. These findings indicate the need for ongoing investigation of the long-term cardiovascular consequences of COVID-19, end quote. Puntman, P-U-N-T-M-A-N-N, et al., 2020. As COVID is an inflammatory vascular disease, primarily these and other cardiac findings are not surprising. However, the variable nature of cardiac involvement in those with mild to severe disease is a tricky phenomenon. Thus, we must reinforce for all patients with a history of febrile, moderately ill COVID disease that they look at the American College of Cardiology guidelines for exercise. The link is provided in the newsletter website. Number eight. There is emerging information out of Israel that the mRNA Pfizer vaccine may be linked to cardiac inflammation in teenagers and young male gender adults. This inflammatory response known as myocarditis occurs after viral infections in rare instances and seems to be a rare but significant issue with COVID vaccines. Science Magazine states, quote, in a report submitted today to the Israeli Ministry of Health, they conclude that between one in 3,000 and one in 6,000 men ages 16 to 24 who received the vaccine developed the rare condition. But most cases were mild and resolved within a few weeks, which is typical for myocarditis, end quote. That's from Vogel et al. 2021. There may be there may have been two deaths post-vaccination, although these are under review. Putting this all into perspective, if a young man gets the virus, the risk of myocarditis is even higher. In one study, 37 out of 1,597 athletes, 27 of them were male, or 2.4 out of 100 had signs of myocarditis post-infection. Daniels et al. 2021. Again, the data shows us that the virus and the mRNA vaccines are very special in both good and bad ways. Viral infection real-time tend to be dramatically worse than the vaccine variety of the viral protein exposure. That being said, this is the exact reason why we track vaccine-related and infection-related side effects to understand risk and outcomes. All right, that's the end of uh, Quick Hits. I hope everyone can get back to as normal life as possible without forgetting that lifestyle choice drives risk in all ways related to infectious diseases. Okay, let's move on to section two. After listening to a discussion with Dr. Ed Behrens from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, otherwise known as CHOP, regarding multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, it appears to be the case that certain individuals have genetic mutations putting them at risk for immune dysregulation, whereby the chemokine CXCL9 response to gamma interferon after being infected with SARS-2 is upregulated due to a missing repressive protein in this inflammatory cascade. This leads to elevated immune activation, very reminiscent of macrophage activation syndrome. 
In other words, many children will respond to SARS-2 with normal and appropriate gamma interferon proteins to attack and kill the virus. CXCL9 is one signaling molecule in this process that recruits the white blood cells to enter the fray and fight SARS-2. When the virus is killed, there are repressive proteins that are called in to stop this whole inflammatory process. This is the normal state for 99.99% of our children. The rare child with a genetic mutation cannot shut off this process, leading to all the inflammatory sequelae see in COVID-19, or otherwise known as MISC. The future of medicine is to identify these mutations in children and have them vaccinated first and foremost as we know who they are and what their risk is. The same should occur in adults. Section 3. For unifying theory on SARS-CoV-2 pathology, that was published in September of last year of 2020. There's a link in the website if you want to read more about the whole pathophysiologic pathway of this disease. Okay, folks, that wraps up this week of the audio version of the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter, volume 11, issue number 25, published on June 7th of 2021. I hope it adds value to your life, to your existence, and to your happiness. Have a great day, and remember to hug those kids.